And uh, turn to second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. We'll return to the preaching series, kind of a series within a series on the Ten Commandments as we work our way through the book of Exodus. And tonight we come to the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment, and um, I'll begin reading in verse 8 and read through verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, you have blessed the Sabbath day. Even this day on which we worship you, this first day of the week, is a blessed day. Bless the word now which concerns this blessed day, that we might be built up in our faith, that we might be built up in this command, as well as this blessing afforded to us in celebrating who you are and what you have done in this day of rest for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying this. If you are thinking tonight, uh, Pastor York is going to give us the list of all the things that we can do and all the things that we cannot do on the Lord's Day or on the Sabbath uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that's next week. Um, <laughs> and actually, even that is really the wrong way to think about it, as I'll try to let you know. The Sabbath is not a, a prison that we're trapped in. We have to bear, you know, scrape our way through what, we, what can we do, what can't we do. We can't think of it that way. But we will get uh, to the whole host of duties of the Lord's Day, which principally concern, they principally concern worship next week. Uh, But today, or this evening, I would like to proceed uh, along the same way. I hope this is uh, not becoming redundant, but I hope rather by by preaching each of the commandments in this this way, looking at them in relation to Israel, in relation to Christ, we'll do those two tonight, and then how the commandment relates to us, I'm giving you a, a framework, a strategy to think about these commands so that they're not just commands floating in the air, You know how to tether them to their redemptive location in history as well as to their Christological fulfillment. So tonight, we'll follow that same pattern, threefold pattern, looking at the commandment in relation to Israel, then in relation to Christ, and then next week to us, where we will be principally looking at the duties and the blessings of the fourth commandment. And so let's begin by looking at the fourth commandment in relation to Israel. And as we look at this commandment as it's given to Israel, one of the thir- one of the things I really want to call attention to right away is that in this 
commandment in our text, there is a reason given. There is a basis for the command. And that basis, that reason is found in verse 11. Here's why you need to do this. Or in Israel needed to do it. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now what I want to emphasize to you right now, and really to try to give you the the framework to understand it, not only as it comes to Israel and to Christ, but also even to us, is that this command is rooted in God's work of creation. It is, and let me say this very clearly and distinctively, it is a creation ordinance. Now, I do know that if you go over to Deuteronomy chapter 5, the reason is, is different. It is because of God's bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And there's much that we could say about that. But the text before us tonight, and really what I'd like to focus on uh, as we begin, is the reason, is the basis for the command, namely, what happened in creation. It's a creation ordinance. And one of the reasons why I want to press that home is that um, so often there's kind of an objection given to keeping this command any longer. And the objection kind of goes like this. Well, you know, the fourth commandment, that was given to Israel. And, you know, it, it was, it was uh, given as a redemptive concern. And as the ceremonial law faded away, so also does the fourth commandment. It was part of those things. It was part of the ceremonial law. Well, again, we would probably need to explore Deuteronomy chapter 5 to look at some of those concerns. But what we can see here from verse 11 is that's not the case, ultimately. The basis for this command is not rooted in redemption. It is ultimately rooted in creation. Verse 11 explodes the idea that it was only redemptively calibrated, and so as certain facets of redemption fade away, so the command fades away. And and let's face it, there is a a general neglect and malaise uh, concerning this command today widely in the church. But what's very interesting as we look back to this command as it's rooted in creation is this. I'm convinced that not only is the reason for the command, uh, we're shown God's work of creation as a pattern. God worked and then he rested. So that's the pattern, the basis for our to work and to rest. But I'm convinced that even as it is uh, uh, given in creation in the book of Genesis, even there, there's a command aspect that is held out. Note the language of Genesis Two, three, I'm leaving Exodus, going back to the creation account itself. Immediately after we're told that God finished his work on the seventh day and rested on the seventh day, after we're told that, what do we hear? We hear this, and it, it also is repeated in Exodus verse 11. So God blessed the seventh day and made it 
holy. So for us to be shown a pattern of God working and resting, and that being the pattern of our working and resting is one thing. But we're told specifically in Genesis 2-3 that God not only rested, he did something beyond that. He blessed the day. He consecrated the day. He sanctified the day. He made the day holy. Now, that having been said, and that's in the account in Genesis, I cannot believe that Moses would have gone to all that trouble in Genesis 2-3 to say that God blesses the seventh day, that he sanctifies the seventh day, he makes it holy. I can't believe that he would go to all that work in the creation account if Adam knew absolutely nothing about that. Why? Uh, I think it's uh, the, the presumption ought to be on us that what is said in the Genesis account would have been communicated to Adam. He would have known that not only did God do these things, but uh, not only did he work and rest, but he sanctifies the day. That is very distinctive. That's, that's unique. Why does he go to all that trouble to point that out in the creation account if Adam has no inkling of it? So that from the very beginning, there's a day of worship set forward for the people of God. But uh, why would Adam have been given a command to do likewise as God did and to sanctify the Sabbath day? Now I'm just, I'm not thinking of God's people generally, but I'm thinking specifically of Adam. Why would Adam, not me, the first Adam, need to have been instructed on this? Well, it really relates to the creation week as a whole. Now bear with me with a little bit, uh, for a little bit, because I want to, to give you a theological a way of understanding the Sabbath command uh, as it comes within the creation week. Because what we see in the creation week as a whole is quite spectacular. Um, if you look at what comes at the beginning of the creation week, Sabbath day is at the end. But if you look at the beginning, even before the first day, what are we told? We are told in Genesis 1-2 uh, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now what that begins to do, especially as we look at the last day, there is a bounding of the week, bookends placed on the week, where God, on the first day, or even before the first day, God separates himself. He, he takes his residence within creation, but separates himself from those dwelling below. He takes his residence above. The spirit hovering above is not the spirit floating over the Pacific Ocean or something. That's residing in heaven above. God takes his royal residence there. God enters into a holy space at the beginning of the week. And God separates himself into a holy space at the beginning of the week. So also we see that at the end of the week, God enters not into a holy space, but into a holy time, a time, a day when his works are complete, finished. He enters into a rest of holy enjoyment and a, uh, a, now a ruling over the work which he has completed. And so the complete picture of the created week, week is that God is separated from us on the front end into holy space and separated from us on the back end of the week 
into holy time. And so the question which leaps off the page, if you're understanding that from Genesis 1 and 2, is this. How can we, as God's image bearers, how can we come to dwell with him in his holy place? How can we come to share fellowship with him both in that exalted holy space, heaven, and also in the exalted holy day that he inhabits, the endless seventh day? And it is an endless day, the seventh day. Every other day has a morning and evening, beginning and an end, the seventh day, none in creation. And the clear answer provided is, how do we enter into holy space and holy time, perfected communion with God? It is through the covenant of works, obedience that Adam would have performed. If Adam would have done the work assigned to him to guard God's holy garden and to keep it and to obey the commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he would do that, then notice the connection here. Each day of the week, God does his work, and then he does sort of a judicial surveil of his work. And what does he say? Good, 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 good. Last day, sixth day, very good. And at the completion of good and very good, then what? He enters into rest. So that would have been, that was the pattern provided for Adam, uh, particularly as he would have been tested as to his knowledge of the good at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Would his works be declared good as God's were, and would he enter into God's rest? Well, of course, we know the sad story is that he did not do that. He sinned, and he fell, and he died, and he lost communion with God. On that day. And all of this is to say that this command, uh, uh, that's the background of this command as it is given to Israel. It shows forth the glory and the hope of what man looked forward to in creation eternal, unceasing, perfected fellowship with God forever. We're going to talk about the the blessings of, of obedience and what we can do, but let's not lose track of the the grandeur and the glory and the big picture, the theology of the Sabbath day here. There was put before Adam and even before Israel a day of rest placed beyond all the work of testing and probation. But now, and let's bring this back to Israel, remember, as we've been looking at, at these commandments given to Israel, the first commandment, the second commandment, the third commandment, we've seen that there is a pattern. Remember, both the first and second commandment are broken in a very public, discernible way there in Exodus chapter 32 at the worship of the golden calf. And last week we saw, well, commandment one, commandment two, bang, bang. Commandment three, in the third book of the Bible, in Leviticus 24, Uh, the same thing happened. There was, last week we saw that unique exemplary instance where the man, the unnamed man of Leviticus 24 quarrels with another man in the midst of his quarreling. What does he do? He curses. He blasphemes the name of the Lord. He takes the name of the Lord in vain. And what is his just desert? He is put to death by stoning 
And just as we saw that, one by one, the commandments are being broken by Israel. One, two, and three. So we see it also done in a historical, unique, and public way with the fourth commandment. We see that at the fourth commandment in the fourth book. In the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 and 36, just here as I read this to you. It's very similar to what we heard last week in some ways. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had It had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, very similar, this unnamed man who in that respect, becomes sort of the exemplary exemplary commandment breaker. They're not quite sure what to do. In each case, they go to the Lord, and the sentence is the same. He shall die. In this man, we see whether or not Israel will faithfully work and then enter rest. And the answer to the question is no. No, you will not. Enter my rest. This man spurns the holy rest, the holy communion signified to him through this day of rest. He defies that holy day. He walks all over it by going out and spending the day on himself. He's focused on, and I'm not quite exactly sure what's going on here with the picking up of sticks. I guess I suppose it's gathering kindling. But it's certainly not a day spent enjoying and worship the Lord. So, a hope of entering rest is held out to God's original son, Adam, in the garden. He fails. And a hope of entering into a form of rest is held out to Israel, God's corporate son. And here, as in each of the first three commandments, we see in a public, historical, unique way, they fail to keep the law of God. They trample on his holy law. And so we need, really then, most certainly, to look at the second point, uh, the fourth commandment in relation to Christ. How does the fourth commandment relate to Jesus Christ? And we need to know this. There is good news to be heard here because so far it's been uh, rather depressing news, rather bad news. How does the fourth commandment relate to Jesus Christ? Well, uh, in two ways we can say. Uh, First, he keeps the command for us narrowly, and he keeps the command for us broadly. Uh, Narrowly, he does precisely what the fourth commandment does. He gives himself to the worship and the enjoyment of God on the seventh day. We see that, for example, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Here are these words. Concerning Jesus, Luke writes, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And and notice these next words. And as was his custom. This is what he always did. uh, At least to some, whether or not to teach or not. As his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. 
There was some, also some preaching that he took on that day, so perhaps he wasn't doing that every day. But every day it was his custom to go into God's house, to worship, to give himself to the obedience, to, to obey this command, to remember God's holy day. But he not only keeps the Sabbath narrowly, he keeps it broadly. Broadly in the sense that he and he alone keeps all of God's commandments He did this so that his works, just like Adam's, could be evaluated and determined whether or not they are good. So that there could be a a verdict pronounced upon him. Enter into my rest. What was the day on which his works, all of his works were evaluated to see whether or not they were good? And whether he could enter into God's rest, that was the day of his resurrection from the dead. On that day, Jesus Christ, he ceases from all labor and he enters into God's holy rest because he is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased, who has done all of the work given to him by the Father. Beloved, is this not the good news that you delight and long to hear? Because if Christ has gained rest, if Christ has moved beyond work, the work of the covenant of works, if he has moved beyond such work and entered into rest, if he has done that, if that is true for him, and if you are joined to him, that means you have gained such rest. Now, as I'm going to point out next week, uh, there is a not yet to having entering into God's rest. But as we might consider the not yet having entered into God's rest, let us not lose track of the glorious already. The rest that we do have in the completed work of Jesus Christ as he has entered into rest. If you are in Christ by faith, In a real sense, you have entered into the rest of God. You yourself are beyond now a work of probation if you are in Christ. And so the vital question for you is, are you in Christ? Are you in the man, the only man who by his work has entered the rest of God, the blessing of God? the eternal enjoyment of God. Are you in that one? That is not a question for someone else. That is a question for every one of you. Do you know him? Do you know that you have peace with God? Or are you wondering, you know, whether you have to discharge some work by which you might have peace with God, by which you might Have rest with him. Let me use the words of Hebrews 3, which quote from Psalm 95, which we sung earlier, which deal with God's rest. And as I read these words, I exhort you in the strongest way that I know how to find the rest that is in Jesus Christ. We read this in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you of an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of rest and salvation. You begin to enter into the rest that only Christ affords you by faith, by faith in him. Do not fail to enter that rest. Again here, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, and this is the critical word, unbelieving heart. Later, the writer of Hebrews says they did not enter God's rest because they did not believe. They did not have faith. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Trust, believe, rest in the God who grants you perfect rest in Christ. And now, the last point that I have on the fourth commandment in relation to Christ is this. And this is an important one for us to think about, both in terms of our knowing what Christ has done for us. But now there is, even here, some some application to us. You see, because Christ entered into rest... Uh, Not on the last day of the week. When did he enter into the rest? I already said it. When was his work evaluated as such that he might enter into rest? It was on the day of his resurrection, which was not the first day of the week. Not the last, or not the, excuse me, not the seventh day. It wasn't the first day of the week. It wasn't the last day of the week. It wasn't the seventh day of the week. It was the first day of the week. And so the fourth commandment, as it relates to Christ and as it comes to you in Christ, it comes to you in a very different way than it came to those before Christ came. Indeed, as you receive this commandment in Christ, you receive it as you are ushered into a, it's really worth thinking this way, into a new time, into a new day. Therefore, the day is no longer the seventh day, It is no longer the last day, but it is the first day. And the New Testament witness to the day of worship changing from the seventh, the last day, to the first day is uh, quite powerful. So let me provide you with some examples for that. Because some, some really just believe that there is no basis to change the day from the seventh to the first. That is not the case. In all of the gospel accounts at their ends, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20... In all of these instances, at the end of each of the Gospels, we see not only that Jesus rises on the first day of the week, but on each, in each of those accounts, he meets with, he fellowships with his people on that day. Therefore, the day changes, no longer being the last day of the week. God's people now uh, no longer work unto the last day of the week uh, so that they might enter into their rest. No, time is utterly turned on its head in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, not the last day, but the first day of the week. The, The day which comes before work. That day is the day of rest. In other words, in Christ, and this is, I think, an important point to grasp, We no longer work unto rest, but in Christ we work from rest. 
We no longer work unto rest, but we work from rest. Time has changed. Time is different. And we know that the first day of the week is now uh, the, 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 the day of the church's gathering. We saw that he meets with a few disciples. He gathers with them. But is the whole church gathering on the first day of the week? Yes, yes it is. We see that in Acts 20, verse 7. We read this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. That is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then later in that passage, he talks about Paul preaches until midnight, in fact. <laughs> there was a, there's a bad uh, incident that concerns that. But it's the first day of the week. The church is gathered to celebrate the hearing of the word and the sacraments. And the example of the church gathering in the first day of the week on the day of Christ's resurrection is repeated elsewhere as well. We see it also in 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of the week... On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Well, why were they to do this on the first day of the week? Very clear. That's the day that the church worship. They understood that. Time had changed. The day of rest was different. There is still a principle of one day of rest in seven. But it comes to you in a new, in a unique way in Christ. Uh, you will notice uh, that may change as I preach through this commandment next week. But for the most part, when I speak about uh, the, the day of rest, I usually don't refer to it as the Sabbath day. I may on occasion, but I usually refer to it as what? As the Lord's day. And of course, I've already given you some reason why, because um, uh, the day of gathering is the day when our Lord was declared to be Lord by his resurrection from the dead. But the designation of Sunday, I think, as the Lord's day or the day of worship as the Lord's day is made explicit in Revelation 1, 9 and 10. There we read this. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of, called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And here's the significant part. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He was in the spirit on a special day. Now, what day would this be except the day of worship? The day of the spirit is the day of the Lord. The Lord's day. Well, people of God, you've seen how the first... Uh, how um, first of all, this commandment related to Israel, mirroring the hope of Adam, entering into rest by his work. That did not pan out. You've seen how, how such a hope is historically dashed to pieces under this representative Israelite who goes out and is condemned to death because he breaks this fourth commandment. But you've also seen how this fourth commandment relates to Christ, haven't you? He obeys this commandment perfectly for us, both narrowly and broadly. His perfect obedience affords him rest, full enjoyment and communion with God. A rest which all who are joined to him have as well. If you are in Christ, you haven't fully entered into that rest. But the rest has begun for you. Celebrate it on the new day 
the Lord's Day, and I will speak much more about how we ought to celebrate that next week. But let me close with this, 1 Thessalonians 5.5. And this really gets to the point that time has changed for us. We stand in a new day. We stand in the day of rest and resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for you, are all chi- for you are all children of light, children of the day. What day? This glorious day that we have been hearing about. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. We are of the day. The day of Christ's resurrection. The day of the Lord, the Lord's day. Therefore, as you leave this place, walk as those who do not belong to night, but belong to the day, the day of rest, who belong to the Lord forever and ever. Let's pray.